Said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time? Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking with Dr. Christopher Ryan. That's me. Although I feel like a fraud every time I call myself doctor. I'm not a guy to come to if you've got something stuck in your throat. Definitely not me. Or spots on your genitals. Don't tell me about it. I'm not that kind of doctor. Anyway, uh, the opening song was uh, by Carsey Blanton. It's called Smoke Alarm. It's a great little song. You can check out more of her work at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E. Blanton. B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. My guest this week is an old friend of mine named Richard Schweid, who is uh, one of the more fascinating people I'm lucky enough to know. Uh, not just because he's a pal, but he's uh, an author of how many books? Uh, eight, I think. Eight, he thinks. That, that sums it up for you. you. You write a certain number of books. You know, I've written one. That's pretty easy to remember. <laughs> yeah. But you, you get to eight, I guess things start to blur a little bit. So, all right. So let's. There's let's, some you count and there's some you don't. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But you've published eight books. Uh, somewhere in there, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. So let's see how many I know. I know the red, the chili pepper one. Chili pepper, hot peppers. Yeah. Hot peppers, not about the band, but about the the plants. <laughs> That's right. That that one uh, actually, it's a funny thing. Long before I met you, I saw a reference to that book in. The Marriage of the Sun and the Moon by Andrew Weil, That's right. who I also interviewed for this podcast. Uh -huh. uh, and then, yeah, I mean, what, 10 years later or something, I met you and uh, put the two and two together. So the, the Chili Pepper book, what came next? I wrote a book about catfish farming in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, I wrote a book. About what, wait, what was that one called? For it was called. You're uh, going to have thousands of podcast listeners. Catfish and the Delta. Catfish and the Delta. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And... Uh, it's about the Mississippi Delta as much as it's about the catfish industry, which but when I wrote it, the catfish industry was booming. Uh, and it's now gone downhill fairly rapidly. Uh, but uh, it's nevertheless uh, gave me an interesting door into the Delta. Well, why has it gone downhill? If the uh, fish cheap isn't... imports from Asia, basically. Ah, of catfish? Uh-huh. Ah. Yeah. And is catfish, I, I know they eat it down south, right? Yeah, but this is farmed catfish. Uh, it's a book about how you farm cat. Who's farming catfish? Right, but it's for human consumption. It's right. not for cat That's food right. or something. No. Oh, all right. Okay. And it's basically cotton farmers who, uh, when the price of cotton fell, they sort of transferred the patriarchal feudal system of cotton farming in the Mississippi Delta, and they dug catfish ponds, stocked them with catfish, and hired the same poor white, poor black laborers to work the catfish ponds as they had hired to work the fields and basically in the same relationship too. Uh, it was a curious industry, hmm. uh, but it went up and then it went down. <laughs> when, when did this happen? This They put in and started to really make money off of catfish in, the, I'd say, probably the late 80s. Oh. Uh, there was a county agent who was basically the, the guy that started the whole thing down in Belzona, Mississippi, and uh, he's dead now. But... Uh, 
I interviewed him. I went down. I went down as part of a larger book I was saying to do about fish farming. And I'd never been to the Mississippi Delta, although I'm from Nashville. And man, I just fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. The Mississippi Delta is really? really out there. It's a very particular part of America. It's got a very strong energy. You know, Mississippi's been dropping soil on the Delta for centuries. And it's got this very fertile soil, and you can see a long way to any trees because it's all been farmed. It's flat. And flooded, I and flooded. Yeah. It doesn't get flooded much anymore. I mean, they built levees after the ter- they had a terrible flood in 28, I think. Mm. But uh, it's just a very energetic, very curious part of the world in which the people are very different than most people in the United States. Right. They live differently. There's a large distance between any two things. Uh, people are great storytellers down there. They tell terrific stories. Hmm. Uh, just an interesting part of the country. I've never been there. That's... Yeah, we were talking at lunch. I recommend it. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. It's, the Delta's great. You know, the only real exposure I've had to the Mississippi Delta in any uh, extended sense is, I don't know if I ever told you the story, when I got hired by a Spanish film festival to translate from Ebonics to English. <laughs> no. <laughs> I never told you that story. It's true. It's on my, It's on my. you know, one of these days I'm going to write my resume and that'll be on there. Uh, yeah, this... Uh, this friend of mine calls me up one day and she says, Chris, do you understand black people? I said, well, I don't know, I guess. <laughs> I don't really understand the question, you know? And it turns out that it was, you know, In Edit is the name of this uh-huh. festival they have yeah, here. Festival, yeah. And, um, yeah, they've got great Spanish translators who speak English very, very well, understand it very well. But that year, uh, one of the, the foci or the, you know, the concentrations of the films were about the origins of blues and huh. rock and all that in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, so they, they had all these independent films, you know, interviewing these guys. You're talking about telling stories, yeah. you know, sitting on the porch, playing yeah, the guitar. Yeah. And the Spanish people couldn't understand a word they were saying. <laughs> so they didn't want me to translate yeah. into Spanish. They just wanted me to translate into English they could understand. Yeah. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was my exposure to the Mississippi Delta. That's good. Anyway, okay, so that's so you were you were thinking of doing a, fish on, uh, a book on fish farming, which is an interesting subject, and it's something that's... It is an interesting subject. Yeah. It, it gets more and more interesting. You know, I was reading recently, well, you know, I worked in the salmon industry in Alaska two years. I was reading recently that most of the salmon that you buy now is farmed salmon. And because it's kind of like the mad cow thing where they're feeding fish meal to fish and the salmon flesh is white. So then they dye it pink. So the shit you buy at Costco or whatever is dyed pink that's not its natural color well, I've never, I, don't, I don't eat farmed salmon because if you look at a cut of farmed salmon you'll see that, I mean there's an excessive amount of fat yeah and the reason is obviously because the salmon is a very active fish right and if you're raising it in some sort of enclosure it really uh, has to work a lot less hard than if you're you know if it's sure. out in the wild so not you get swimming a lot of upstream fat. and because you get a lot of fat uh, you know, if it's fishes in it, water that's uh, mercury tinted, for instance, the mercury will uh, migrate to the fat, etc., etc. Right. You know, so I try to avoid farm. Farmers said I eat quite a bit of farm-raised trout that I buy here because I like the way it tastes, but God knows what's in it. Yeah. You know, but uh, yeah. 
So. All right. So you've you've uh, you've worked a lot with fish, though. I mean, the reason I'm, I'm thinking about this, you were going to write yeah, this like, big book about fish farming. Right. You got another book about eels. Well, it's interesting to me. You know, fish farming was really is, and still is. It's, it's just an interesting concept. I guess because I've always liked to fish. And I always thought, geez, raise fish for a living. That sounds, you know, I like, when I was a kid, I loved to watch aquariums. Right. I thought that sounded like a nice way to farm. Yeah. Uh, but of course, it's as difficult and, pain, and painful as any other kind of farming, you know, as it turns out. But uh, but it is interesting that you can farm fish like that. Have you seen these, uh, what are they called? It's, it's, a, it's like a symbiotic system where they've got, I think it's catfish that are like the water runs the, it's like a hydroponic farming system where they've got vegetables and the water runs through the vegetables then hmm. then collects in a pond the fish are in the pond the fish i don't know they clean out the the water somehow so it cycles back through or maybe the fish shit is a nutrient for the plants or whatever so they set it up where it's like an enclosed system and you can harvest the fish and the vegetables and everything and it, huh. it sort of takes care of itself yeah there's not a lot of input of fertilizers or whatever it just takes sunlight and and i guess you have to add fresh water sounds like interesting yeah 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 I don't know. Who knows? Maybe they'll turn out to have as many problems as anything yeah, else. Yeah, right. Okay, so Mississippi Delta catfish farming. Then what came next? I wrote a book about Barcelona. Uh, and that was back in the day. Jews, transvestites, and then Olympic season, that book is called. <laughs> Jews, Jews, transvestites, and Olympics. Barcelona. It came out in 92? Jews, transvestites, Olympic season. No, in 94. Oh, 94. After okay. the Olympic season had been and gone. So the Jews, is that related to Montjuic? No, the oh. Jews was more or less related to the fact that in 1992, when Barcelona held the Olympics, it was also the 500th, the king centennial of the expulsion of the Jews from Spain. Oh, right. Uh, and it was, uh, the book deals with that. And it also, I wanted the book to deal with the... Uh, changing sexual mores of the Spanish people. Hmm. Uh, ergo, the transvestites. Right. Uh, so I interviewed a lot of Jews and a lot of transvestites and wrote about the Olympics. Uh, and that was a book. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say choice of titles was not the best, really. That's what the publisher said. But I wanted to explain to people what the book was about. Right. And Truth that is, in fact, uh, yeah. what it's about. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, I did it on a floppy disk, so it's not neither of those two books, the Catfish book nor the Barcelona book, are, are like up on the web uh, because I'm lazy, you know, and I have to essentially type them in by hand. Really? If I want to put it up on the web, there's, I don't really have the can... floppy disks that I did them oh, on. Oh, well. Jokers say, they ain't around, you know. Uh, right. So... Whereas with my next book, which was about cockroaches, I did do that one, and that is up on the web because the rights have reverted to me. And uh, that's on Amazon.com. Yeah, cockroach papers. Yeah, the cockroach papers. I love that right. book. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that book. <laughs> Thank you. I did. Too. <laughs> I liked that book. It was an interesting book, you know. So, what leads a man to write a book about cockroaches? I was down in Brownsville, Texas, working on the daily paper down there, uh, the Herald, I believe, and. Uh, I was living in a place in Brownsville that was, as most places in Brownsville are, uh, full of the American cockroach, which is the big long sucker that uh, can fly a couple of feet before it crashes and does, you know. Mm. And every night, man, I'd be down there working on that paper, which wasn't that hard because it was a skinny paper, 
but I, and we weren't really strong enough to kill a cockroach with even that paper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you get, I'd get home like 11 o'clock at night having stared at the screen all night mm-hmm. writing headlines, you right. know. And uh, I'd open the door and turn on the light and those bastards would just come at me, those cockroaches. They'd get spooked when you turn on the light and they'd fly through the air, land in my hair and they can't fly very far. Is it the same as a palmetto bug? Yeah, well, that's what they get. It's a euphemism for oh, like, okay. a water bug. You know, uh, okay. Instead of saying, shit, I've got a cockroach problem, you say, oh, I've got a lot of palmetto. <laughs> it sounds, sounds a little nicer, doesn't it? Uh, so, and I was thinking one day, I was thinking, well, everybody must have a cockroach story. It's like, it's something that sticks in your mind. You know, almost anybody who's encountered a cockroach, it's not like they've forgotten it, you know. It's not like a fly or a flea. You know, you could have it and forget it. You wouldn't be able to say exactly when it was or under what circumstances you saw that fly. But with a cockroach, it's usually so offensive to the people that they remember it and it makes a good story, you know? So I thought, well, this would be an interesting book. Because I was curious about cockroaches, what, you know, what their biology and their natural history is, so. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's, there's the whole, like, Keith Richards and cockroaches. The only two things that'll survive a nuclear blast, yeah, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> Is that true? The cockroaches are like the most they surviving. Sur- they will survive a nuclear blast. It's doubtful that they would survive a series of them. Mm. But uh, they, uh, they're, you know, it's God's. <laughs> that's it's, a great. That's a great distinction. <laughs> like one nuclear bomb wouldn't kill them, right. but a series. No, they're like the pinnacle of evolutionary design. You know, if you believe in a, in God, you have to think that God expended the the most, the best effort on a cockroach because they're really built for survival, you know. They're yeah. old, old, they're 350 million years old and thriving. Uh, their design is just simple and excellent, you know. Yeah. So You know, the, uh, there's a famous line, I think it's Haldane, a famous um, biologist, was at a dinner party and someone said to him, you know, with your great knowledge of biology, what do you, you know, what have you concluded about God? And he said, only that God has an inordinate fondness for beetles. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's yeah. so fucking many yeah. of them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, hey, listen, before we get back to talking with Richard Schweid, just want to remind you to check out some of the other podcasts at uh, feralaudio.com particularly the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, which is one of my favorites. Duncan is responsible for me getting involved in podcasting. It's all his fault. Um, And what else was I going to say? Oh, yeah, if you download this from iTunes, uh, maybe uh, leave a comment and a rating. I'm told that's important. And you can support the podcast at feralaudio.com. You go to the Tangentially Speaking page, and you'll see a button for Donate if you've got extra money lying around you don't know what to do with good problem to have you can support the podcast and the other way you can support the podcast which costs you nothing if you buy stuff from amazon is just go through the amazon affiliate link that you'll see there on the page uh and then anything you buy from amazon they kick a couple percentage of the money back to us and it doesn't cost you anything at all so that's a pretty pretty cool way to redirect a little bit of the money toward the podcast um, okay, so, and I mentioned that the, the theme song is by the great Carsey Blanton, and you can hear a whole episode where I interview her, and she plays a couple of songs uh, live, which is wonderful. Her father, by the way, wrote uh, a book called 
Radical Honesty. You ever heard of that? No. He's a he's an interesting cat. I'm gonna I'm gonna interview him at some <laughs> point as well. Anyway, we were talking about uh, Richard's books. I think we got through the Catfish book, uh, the Transvestites, Jews, and the and the Olympics book about Barcelona. Uh, what else were we talking about? Cockroach. The cockroach. We covered the cockroach book. Now, I wanted to ask you about your childhood. I know you grew up, your dad owned a bookstore, is that my right? My dad owned a bookstore. Uh, my mom owned a bookstore. My dad married the bookstore. And <laughs> got your mom in the deal? Got my mom in the deal. Right. And, uh, that's right. And, and I grew up a long time ago when Nashville was basically a bifurcated town between uh, blacks and whites. And not many other people. There were not any foreigners to speak of in Nashville. No immigration when I grew up. Were there actual railroad tracks bifurcating the town? There were railroad tracks bifurcating uh, really? black and white neighborhoods, yeah. So the wrong side of the tracks was North a little... North Nashville was the wrong side of the tracks. South Nashville was the better side of the tracks. Huh. Uh, but uh, these days, uh, Nashville's changed dramatically. There's like 100 languages spoken, 100 plus. Uh, it's become quite a popular, one of the most popular cities for people from other countries to come to because it's relatively inexpensive, it's green, it's sort of, you know, one thing that hasn't changed about Nashville is that it has more churches per capita than any other city in the United States. Uh, and some people like that and some people like myself didn't like that very much, but uh, it's quite, it's an attractive, easy city for a lot of people to come to and there's mm. a good deal of industry and and work there, a lot of uh, academic institutions, etc. Uh, but when I grew up, I couldn't wait to get out. You're you're Jewish, right? Yeah, you're, yeah, right. So your family. I was Jewish. Yeah, and you I was were Jewish. Jewish. Yeah, uh, I'm not uh, practicing Jew, but uh, was there a Jewish community? Very much a Jewish community, large one. Uh, oh. Traditionally, Nashville had a Jewish community. You know, quite a while, maybe since the middle 1800s, and uh, but we kept. Pretty much to ourselves. Jews went to a Jewish country club. You had Jewish friends. Mm. The Goyim did the same. Mm. Uh, so I was in a hurry to leave. <laughs> right. And I didn't leave. I went north. So. How old were you? Go back, you uh, now I go back regularly. I enjoy Nashville tremendously. It's become yeah. a much better place than when I grew up there. So yeah. It's nice. So how old were you when you took off? I was uh, 17 when I left. Wow. So well, where'd you go? I went up north, I went to New York, and then I went to Boston University and uh, dropped out and uh, actually was in Paris in 1968 during the Parisian... You know, I just read something fucking crazy about that. The, 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 what was it called? The Paris, I don't remember, the Paris Spring or whatever it was yeah, called. May or whatever. Yeah. yeah. That... Now, maybe this is bullshit, but what I just read, I think, yesterday was that the protests that sparked the whole student uprising and the, you know, the thing in the streets and all that actually started at, I think it was the Sorbonne, students protesting that they wouldn't let men visit women in the girls in the women's dorm. And the women were saying, you know, and the men were saying, you know, what the fuck? We're, you know, we're, we're adults. Enough of this bullshit, right? We can, and the, and the, the, the university said no, and it became this big struggle, and the students protested, and the police came, and then the, you know, they took the protest to the streets, and the police came in again and started beating people, and then that got the public riled up, and that was the spark that set off the whole revolt, and it was all about, you know, 
yourself. Panty raids. Yeah, yeah, yeah couldn't could, could <laughs> be. I imagine there were some other things thrown in. Yeah. Uh, and when the unions joined, you know, then that was a big deal when the workers and the students sort of uh, got together and closed down the city. You know, they couldn't get gasoline into the city for quite a while, maybe a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, nothing was coming in or trucks couldn't come in and out. Uh, it was interesting. So what, but, yeah, how did you find yourself in Paris in 1968? Well, I was in, actually, uh, when it started to happen, I was in London and thought, well, it'd be interesting to see all of that. And I went over to Paris and I had a couple of friends who were there. Uh, and we went out there every night. But it was curious because being French, it wasn't really, I mean, you have to remember in Spain at that time, May of 68, there were people going out into the street to protest, but they were losing their lives sometimes. I mean, people were killed here yeah. for protesting. At the least, they were detained and had shit beat out of them. Yeah. Whereas in Paris, it was much more mannerly, much more French. Yeah. Uh, students <laughs> would advance and the police would charge and the students would back off. There was a lot of tear gas, but I don't think there was one shop window that was broken. Really? There was no destruction of property. Yeah, interesting. Uh, the more civilized. Uh, much more civilized protests. Yeah. Uh, much more sort of, you could say, you know, uh, intellectually based than, than the Spanish protests at the time, which were much more serious and had much more significant consequences for the people that participated in Spain. But yeah. it's very interesting. Uh, but had less political impact. Well, ironically. I'm not sure. Uh, in the long run, it might be hard to say. Did things change in Spain in the late 60s? Well, I think, think they Franco began to change down? underground. I mean, not underground so much as that they began to change in a below the radar. I mean, the unions began to gain strength, I think, and that there were protests was a change in itself, a big change. Yeah. And I think probably, you know, it must have had a big influence on the technocrats who gradually got more and more power in Madrid, you know. Uh, I think that there was more, it was more like sort of seismic shaking underground that wasn't maybe mm -hmm. evident, but there was like a lot of organizing going on, you know. Right. Uh, I should mention we're sitting in Barcelona as yeah. we do this interview, and Richard's lived in Spain longer than I have, right? 20 years. That's about how long I, I've been here. Yeah. But then you were here, you were in Formentera in the 60s. Yeah, in the set, well, early 70s. Early 70s. Right. Yeah. 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 So you, yeah. you've and seen a lot more Spain than I have. Yeah. 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 So when you were, um, when you were in London, now you're, you're a young guy now. You're like 18, 19, 20, something right. like that. That's right. Were you already working as a journalist? No. No, I wasn't working at you, were, all. you were just a fucking bum, right? <laughs> I'm just a fucking bum. <laughs> yeah, fucking hippie. All right. Majoring so. in reefer, essentially, and, uh, you know, not doing much of anything except uh, walking around with my mouth hanging open, uh, getting to know a lot of interesting people. Yeah. Well, that kind of thing. That's know. good training for a journalist. Yeah, no, that's not bad training for a journalist. Or anything right. else that's yeah, worth doing, that's really. Right. So you went down to Paris, you, you experienced this whole revolution and then what you went back to the states or no, then, stay uh, we actually uh, went to for the first time on a roundabout way went to formentera hitchhiked across europe wound up in formentera which at that time was uh it is the smallest of the balearic islands but at that time was sort of uh, still in the middle ages uh, there were no cars little electricity 
one telephone on the island. <laughs> uh, one telephone. One public phone. Oh, man. And you had to wait a long, you know, if you wanted to call the States, you had to go down and place the call, wait around an hour or two till the operator got yeah. to an international operator. Yeah. There wasn't much currency in, in, it was pretty much a barter, still a barter society. People worked like dogs. They worked from sunup to sundown. Doing what? Is it fishing? Fishing and farming. Right. There were no, uh, there was no doctor. There was one doctor on the island, but he amounted to no doctor. And uh, there was no health care at all to speak of. If you had, you know, cancer, you died slowly and in tremendous pain because you didn't have the money to buy uh, any sort of analgesic. Uh, life, was, life was quite difficult. So who was living there then? I guess the, the you know, the people who had always lived there people, and then people like you who were coming in well, for the rustic. Well, people like me came, uh, what they would do when you got to Formentera in the early 70s, when the boat landed, you had to go through a little hut that belonged to the Guardia Civil, to the police. And you had to give them your passport. And then you never saw them again. Uh, but when you wanted to leave the island, you had to go by the commissaria, by the police station, and pick up your passport so that they would always know who was on the island and who wasn't. And they didn't let, the other thing that, that accomplished was not to let Spaniards in. They did not want Spaniards coming down there and being contaminated by all these hippies. But the hippies, you know, as little cash as we had, we had some cash. And, uh, and that was welcome there. So they kind of let us come on the island, left us alone for the most part and it's kind of like Hong Kong for the Chinese or something you know yeah. keep it all isolated no, were, were the other islands were people going to Ibiza and people were going to Ibiza it wasn't quite as restricted uh, in Mallorca but uh, I don't really know how it was there yeah uh, I don't know because you were I was in Formentera yeah so Formentera you were hanging out majoring in reefer as well well, more or less, yeah, it was, <laughs> there wasn't enough reefer in those days in Formentera. Yeah. But uh, no, you know, we were, life was very cheap. I worked uh, with the people, with the Formenterans sometimes, you know, doing uh, farming or, or cutting a tree or whatever needed to be done. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to Goulamim in the south of Morocco and bought trading beads. Gulamine beads, you know, Milifiori beads. Mm. Remember those beads that hippies used to like to wear yeah. from Morocco? Yeah. Uh, and, and brought them back and made bracelets and sold them to the tourists in Formentera and Ibiza. Oh, uh, yeah? Yeah. What was Morocco like in 70, 71? Gulamine was amazing. Uh, it was quite something, really. <laughs> it was really something. <laughs> but unfortunately, I went back like uh, maybe in 97, 98. Yeah. And Gulamim has now become the out military outpost uh, down by the Western Sahara. It's where Morocco, mm. uh, you know, has a strong army presence mm. in order to enforce, uh, you know, its rule in the Western Sahara. Uh, and it's become a much less pleasant town. In those days, it was very small. It was kind of the place where people coming up from Africa, traders, would, it was kind of a first stop, so there was, right. a, which is now not there. Uh, and it was, it was interesting. It was interesting to me for sure. I was, uh, I'd never been to Morocco. You know, it's even now, Morocco's another world. You get down there and yeah. you realize you're somewhere that you, you know, somewhere really different. Yeah. You know, where life is really different in many ways, good and bad, you know. 
Uh, so I liked it. I had a good time. Yeah. yeah. But it was kind of hard to make a living in Formentera. I'll bet. But you didn't need much. How long did you stay yeah. there? Two or three years. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was there for That's quite a long time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then you told me a story about you were with a woman and, and she got pregnant and you went to France. Is that, is that around this time? No, that's not around this time. More or less. That's more, a, more or less. More or less. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that for another podcast, maybe. Yeah, save that for another podcast. And uh, after that, I went back to the States and uh, started to, started really when I got back to the States is when I started to do journalism of some kind at any rate. I, re I was living in Oregon in 78 and a in guy named... Eugene? No, in Portland. In Portland. A guy named Tom Gaddis who wrote Birdman of Alcatraz. Oh, yeah. Uh, sort of took me under his wing and we did a bunch of stuff for the local Sunday magazine and other places wherever he could sell it. And, and that's really how I got started doing that kind of work. And at the same time, I had a job as a a private investigator for the public defenders. So I began to learn how to do interviews and sort of sharpen my interview skills. Hmm. And between that and working with Tom Gaddis, I kind of picked up, you know, uh, some sort of rudimentary degree in journalism. Did you tell me a story like you, you traveled around with like a snake charmer or a circus no, magician. magician, a magician. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, but that was earlier, that, right? No, no, that was about that same time. Oh, really? I guess it was earlier, yeah, a couple of years earlier, yeah. So tell Traveled me about around that. as a front man for a magician who had a show that went through the West. I was following <laughs> the magician's assistant who was quite an attractive woman who I was very oh, much right. in love with. All right. And, uh, and was, he, was he banging her? No, I was. And uh, uh, after a fashion. <laughs> and uh, quite a nice fashion, really. <laughs> uh, but she and I began to work as his front men, where we would set up phone rooms and sell tickets. Uh, and then he would come into town and do the magic show and empty the bank account, and we would all move on to uh, to another town. But... Uh, well, empty the bank account? What do you mean? Well, you know, we sell tickets, and we'd get a certain percentage that we'd put in the bank, and he would pay us a little bit, and then he'd take the rest, and then everybody would sort of move the thing to the next town. Right. So he wasn't ripping so, anyone off. It wasn't a con man. No. Well, no. <laughs> I'm not sure what you kind know, of magic it's got, was it's kind of a, uh, In the United States, there's this tremendous sort of parallel economy where you might have a a guy that travels around with two trucks full of, you know, carnival rides or a magic show or donkey basketball or a tent salvation, you know, some tent evangelical preacher who saves souls. But regardless of what it is, it's, it's, you know, it's like this river of cash that flows through the United States. And there's sort of all these backdoor ways to hmm. put your bucket in and take a little bit out, you know. Hmm. Uh, and people, that's what people do. And this guy was kind of part of that economy, you know. So, you know, it, it, when I think of you and your life, I don't know if it's it's the accent, it's the way you write, it's the stories you tell. You always remind me of Mark Twain. 
Could be the mustache. It's a poor damn mustache compared to Mark Twain's. <laughs> You're not wearing white suits, but no, no, yeah, really yeah. looks nice. But I mean, that, the the picture of you and the magician's assistant and the magician and the whole thing—it's just like right out of Huck Finn, you know. <laughs> you remember those two guys that were pretending they were yeah. English noblemen That's or right. whatever, yeah, the yeah, Earl yeah. of, of right. Bridgewater. Yeah. yeah, 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 and the Dolphin. Yeah. All right. So, all right. So, so you got you got into writing at that point in so Portland. I got into writing at that point in Portland, and uh, I met a guy in Seattle who had a small publishing company, and uh, thought it would be good. I thought it would be nice to write a book about hot peppers, which in those days didn't exist, and uh, uh, it wasn't such a chichi subject. Hot peppers in those hmm. days, you know, it was like still sort of under the radar, and uh, and he said, "Yeah, okay, go ahead," you know and gave me a, he said, I'll give you $3,000, and he gave me $1,500, and I took a car and went to uh, New Iberia, Louisiana, and stayed for three months. Home of... Uh, I went to Tabasco. Tabasco, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. And stayed for three months, bothering the McElhaney family and all the other uh, hot sauce manufacturers down there. And Was Tabasco already a dominant brand at oh, that yeah, point? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, God, it was uh, the, the member of the family that ran it then is not the same as it runs it now. He was an old guy, uh, but he let me. He gave me fairly good access, and uh, I loved the kitchen. You know, and it was just again, it was partially an excuse to get into a culture that seemed really interesting and different to me. You know, and Lord knows the Cajun culture is interesting and different. Yeah. So I spent some months down there and enjoyed it. And is that the same trip where you you met Larry Flint? No. <laughs> Wasn't no. That, what was the Larry Flint story? Because I was in New Orleans, right? No. Oh, no. No, it was, in, uh, it was uh, later. Uh, well, it was in 75 or something. I was living in Nashville, and the guy called me who... Uh, Larry Flint had started a magazine, which was called... I want to say it was called Rebel, but I'm not sure. But it was intended to be sort of an alternative weekly to Time Magazine and stuff. And uh, Flint had been arrested for pornography charges, and he was paralyzed from having been shot, you know, uh, before that. And he had also just put up a million dollars for anybody that could give him information about the Kennedy assassination, which would be verifiable about who did it and how it was planned. Hmm. Uh, and he was arrested, and they sent him to... Uh, I'm thinking it's not maybe it is Leavenworth for psychological evaluation and this guy called me from Los Angeles from this magazine and said he wanted me to go and interview Flint and uh, that Althea his wife Flint's wife would be there also and I went and uh they wouldn't let me in to see Flint in the long run, but his oh, attorney was there, right. and Althea and I hit it off really well. She was an extraordinary woman. She's really. the woman played by Courtney Love in the movie. I guess so. Yeah, yeah she was. She was she with was, him for a long time. She was an ex dancer, right? Had, right, uh, and an ex junkie, and yeah. she was scoring for him because he couldn't get enough pain medication. He was in bad pain, and a Japanese woman from Duke University. Uh, became his doctor and weaned him from drugs and 
taught him to control his pain. And she was also there uh, when I tried to get in to see him. And uh, it was a very intense weekend, actually. But Althea was a wonderful, she died, you know, later, fairly young, uh, in Los Angeles, in the bath of an overdose. Mm. Uh, but she was really something. I really, really liked her a lot. She mm. was great, great. Uh, but I never did get him to see Larry Flynn. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, close encounters with Larry Flynn. Yeah, close encounters with my, my literary agent also represents Larry Flynn. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so. I wrote him a letter when I read that Althea died saying that I knew he was hurting because she was a one of a kind. Huh. Uh, but I didn't hear back. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 Well, he probably got a lot of letters. So, continuing down the, the, the list of books here. Where, yeah, where, all where, the rest of the books, all the books to follow are available. They're on, available. On, on the internet. <laughs> at Amazon.com, yeah, through yeah, the yeah. Feral Audio affiliate <laughs> link. So, I'll get like two cents for every book you buy of Richard's, that and he'll get 12 cents. So, good. there you go. That's the way it works. All right, take a break. So, all right, Richard's had its pee, and we're back to continue this discussion. Uh, before I forget, I just want to remind everybody, Richard's got a website, richardschweid.com. That's uh, S-C-H-W-E-I-D. Exactly. And Richard is spelled Richard. That's it. Yeah, that's an easy one. That's right. All right. So, okay, so the books we're about to discuss are all available online. And so start us off here with the Cockroach Papers. That's available online. It's available online. And then, actually, you know, I wrote a book about eels and what have you. But Consider the eel. Consider the eel, yeah. Moving over here, though, was for me, was a... Uh, a terrific change and I was able to do lots of things in Barcelona that I would not have been able to do in the United States uh, having wasted so much time and with a limited education you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but when I came over here in 95 um, actually I had met a friend of mine uh, I met a guy on a plane I got sent over here in the early 80s to do a story for New Age Journal with a, another guy about the Mondragon cooperatives in the north of right. Spain. Oh, okay. Uh, in Basque country, which is, uh, they're the largest cooperatives in the world. Uh, now, when you say cooperatives, what do you mean? It's a cooperative industry where the workers are the owners. Right. All the workers have shares. Right. And they've done, you know, they've been hurting too because Spain's in the middle of the Great Depression right now, but uh, they've lost less. Their losses have been less mm. severe and they've had to... Uh, lay off less people and make less reductions uh, in the cooperative industries than in the other uh, industries and businesses in Spain. So it hasn't been a perfect defense, the cooperative structure, but it's uh, shielded a lot of people right. from a lot of uh, troubles. Well, what sort of industries are they? All sorts of industries. There's a huge grocery chain, Eroski, uh, Fagor, which makes washing machines and all kinds of uh, Industrial equipment. These I are, didn't know that. Yeah, these oh. are all owned by cooperatives up in Basque Country oh. and in Mondragon. And the whole thing was set up in, uh, it's interesting, the whole thing was set up in the 40s by a priest. Um, and somehow it always flew under Franco's radar. Uh, the cooperatives were created and sort of blossomed while Franco was still in power. And it certainly is a, you know, it's a radical economic concept. But somehow they were able to, to persist, you know. Mm. And, uh, it, it's interesting. But on the way back, flying back from there to the States in the 80s, when I did this piece, I was sitting next to a guy, 
uh, who later became really my best friend here, who uh, was just starting off as a director. And uh, he was to go back to New York and be the first correspondent for the public TV station here. And he said uh, that they also wanted him to do a 30-minute documentary about something in the States. What should he do it about? And I said, why don't you come down to Nashville and we'll do one about the Ku Klux Klan. So he did. He came down and... Uh, we did, a, and it initiated a series, a documentary series on public television here in Barcelona that's still going today. Uh, and it was a terribly strong documentary. I couldn't watch it afterwards. It was too strong. What do you mean? Well, we had some scenes of the Klan attacking communists, uh, killing people, shooting people. Uh, stuff that was like B-roll that you found? or the, Yeah, stuff uh, B-roll that we found. And we flew up to Nashville. We flew a guy named Bill Wilkinson up who was the head of the Klan at that time, from Louisiana, he lived in Louisiana, and came up to Nashville. <laughs> and all these people showed up in, uh, you know, robes and You stuff. flew him up? Yeah, we flew him to up. To interview him? To interview him. And he knew... And my friend asked him a great question. Uh, my friend, the director, Carlos Bosque, said to him, uh, he said, well, Mr. Wilson, he said, if you had a daughter, would you rather she married a communist or a black American? Which was an inspired <laughs> question. Yeah. Guy, and the guy, like, did a double take, and he thought about it, and he said, well... I guess you'd have to marry that communist, you know. <laughs> and he later turned out to be an FBI agent, Bill Wilkinson. Really? Yeah, he had to flee. He fled to Belize, where he still lives, if he's alive. No uh, shit. Taking people out on uh, fishing trips. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Good. You know, I met a guy, you might even know this guy, uh, who was a journalist who went undercover in the Klan and wrote a series of articles and then, like, he went into witness protection or something. Was this some years ago? Yeah. He just died like maybe five years ago. I met Jerry him. Jerry Thompson. Mm, that doesn't sound familiar. I met him in Jacksonville. His daughter was my father's secretary. Huh. And we went out and, and spent a weekend at the, he had a house out in the swamp somewhere. Huh. And uh, yeah, he told me all these stories. And then I looked him up online and, you know, saw his whole huh. life story. He was really very interesting guy. Very ballsy dude. Huh. Huh. Um, yeah, we can talk about it later if you're interested. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so... At any rate, this director got in touch with me yeah. uh, in 95 and said uh, that he wanted to do a documentary for this TV station about uh, the Cuban rafters. And, right. and would I help him out by getting in touch with the families of the various Cuban rafters in the United States? So we started to work on this project, which turned into a seven years in which we followed seven rafters. Uh, first to Guantanamo and then up to the United States. Is that where they leave from? Uh, no, they left from everywhere in Cuba. And then when they were picked up by the Coast Guard, they were all sent to Guantanamo for oh, a year. Oh, I see. Uh, because Bill Clinton initially said he wouldn't allow anybody to come to the United States that way. So they would get picked up and sent to Guantanamo. Is this after Alien Gonzalez or before? Before. Uh -huh. Considerably okay. before. Right. This was 94 when the exodus began. And we followed these seven people, and uh, it wound up being turned into a feature-length documentary, which in 2004 was nominated for an Oscar. Uh, and the film is called Balseros. It's available on Netflix. Uh, but what it did for me was to get me to Cuba, mm. because I had never been to Cuba. Right. And uh, I found it really interesting. So I went on to do a book uh, for the University of North Carolina about the relationship between Cubans and North American cars. Uh, and so how it had been 
and, and what it is like today. Right. That's you know, uh, Chase Chevrolet. It's, yeah, uh, Fidel's Oldsmobile and Chase, Chase Chevrolet, Fidel's Oldsmobile. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and uh, and that's very interesting. Yeah. That was a real uh, a a, re a real good process for me to get to know Cuba a little bit and the Cubans and. Uh, so that was good. And, uh, Cuba, I, I've never been to Cuba, but Cuba to me sort of exemplifies, or Burma, or you know, the, several places in the world, exemplify the conundrum of, you know, you, you go to a place that is politically uh, a shitstorm, not a good situation, um, economically pretty bad, and yet everybody who goes to these places reports back that the people there are fucking wonderful and there are like aspects of life there that you don't find anywhere else that are drained out of the modern world and you, you know what i'm talking about yeah, right? yeah no, no it's true and what's more you know if i mean if you go to cuba if before i went to cuba we did some documentaries in the rest of central america uh, nicaragua and guatemala uh, principally, and uh, I mean, uh, if you go to those in Mexico, if you go to those places and you see, you know, how many kids are out in the street, how many people can't read, how many people have absolutely no access to uh, to pharmaceuticals, then you go to Cuba, where you never see children begging in the street. You see them in uniforms coming going to school, where everyone reads. You know, where the average guy is much more savvy in terms of geopolitics than mm. the average person in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, where healthcare is, is, is reasonably good and doesn't cost any money, uh, where medicine is accessible, when it's, you know, uh, where even the most of veterinarian can charge is a dollar to help, you know, to operate on your animal. I mean, uh, all these things are good, you know, compared yeah. to the rest of Central America. You think, ooh, boy. Yeah. And then, of course, there's all the bad. There's the fact that you can't travel, you know, that somebody yeah. from the down the street is always watching you. Uh, yeah. uh, so it, it is a conundrum, like you say. Yeah, it's, uh, a, it's a hard, as an outsider, it's a hard thing it's to comment difficult. on. You know, you can understand why people uh, are loyal to the revolution. You just have to look at those other countries where if you're poor, you can die, easily die from being poor. From it's, a, it's a fatal disease, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And that's not true in Cuba. Yeah. So it's, it's curious, you know, it's, it's certainly, there's, there's a lot of ambivalence, uh, but it's very interesting for me, it was quite interesting. How long were you in Cuba? I've been there, you know, a few months on and off at various times. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. So that, that was good. All right, moving on to the next book. Well, there was the eel book, that's right. And, Consider uh, the eel. The eel was just a... So what is it about eels? It's a beautiful animal. It's a beautiful animal. A eels, they're not animal. fish, are they? They are fish. They are fish. Yeah, and right. they uh, are all eels in Europe and North America are born in the Sargasso Sea, and then they drift to Europe to, or North America, and they... They drift. They drift with the current. And they change form when they get there and enter fresh water. They go, they're contadromous. They go from salt water to fresh water. So not like salmon that are born yeah, the in... the opposite of salmon. Well, salmon are born in fresh, go into salt, and come, come back to fresh. Right. right. Whereas so the these are born, born in, salt, in the salt. Goes to fresh, lives there for 10 or 15 years. Oh, and then they come back to salt. And then they come to, back to salt to, give birth. to breed right. and die. 
Right. Uh, wow, so they're like the anti-salmon. They're the anti-salmon. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, they are the... Uh, we just had Thanksgiving, you know, in the States, and the actual thing that saved the pilgrims' ass was not turkey, but was eels, because it was the, some, one of the few foods that they found here which they knew from England. Really? Yeah, uh, because eel was always very popular in England, still right. is. Right. And uh, the Indians, uh, Tisquantum, Squanto, as Americans disrespectfully call them, uh, showed the pilgrims how to catch eel, uh, thereby saving their lives, even though uh, actually earlier than that, uh, sailors, white sailors had wiped out his tribe with disease. But he took mercy on, you know, on the starving pilgrims and took them out, showed them how to catch eels. And that's made 1620, you know, the first year of winter they were there, uh, they basically lived off of eel. So it's sort of a founding food of yeah. the United States, uh, which has now, of course, fallen far out of favor. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't see a lot of eel. <laughs> no, not a lot. You see, you know, Italian-American families having on Christmas Eve. Really? Do, uh -huh. do they have another name for it? You know, they nah, have, no, no, nah, no. Nah. Like squab instead no, of pigeon no, or something no, like that. Eel, you know. Uh, How do you prepare eel? Uh, you prepare an eel by first skinning it. Not an easy task. I'll bet. Uh, you can skin it the same way you skin a catfish. You can put a nail through its head and then peel the skin off of it like a peel the dress off of a woman, a tight dress off of a woman. Uh -huh. uh, or taking off a condom. Or taking off a condom, exactly. <laughs> Two things which go together. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then you uh, chop it up and fry it, or you can cook it in, you know, it depends. The French cook it in a matelot with red wine and uh, some herbs. Uh, that sounds uh, good. That's good. You know, the Japanese love it on sushi. Are there lots of different, and there must be many subspecies of eel? There are many subspecies of eel, but there are not very many that are accessible, I don't think, to human beings. I can't remember how many species of eel there are, but... But they all do this freshwater, saltwater thing? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The Japanese eel, at any rate, that's commonly eaten, does the same thing in a part of the Pacific. Huh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And now they're threatened. Uh, Europeans have them on... Uh, you know, on a, on a watch list, uh, it's, a, it's a threatened species, endangered species in Europe because the, uh, the little ones, uh, there's been a tremendous decline. It's like 99% decline. The angulas? In the arrival of the elvers, the angulas from the sargasso has declined by 99% in the last 20 years. Uh -huh. And they're virtually not any of them compared to before. Huh. And are those babies, or are they those just are a small... Oh, yeah. those are the, oh, so they're eating the babies, of yeah. course. That's and... Not... and uh, in the United States, they've resisted so far, you know, putting it on an endangered species list, but um, there are those who feel like it should be. Where is the Sargasso Sea? It's between Bermuda. Uh, it's a million square miles of sea bounded by currents, and it's between Bermuda and Virginia, east, way east, like maybe a few hundred miles east of Virginia, uh -huh. uh, and down by Bermuda. Oh, right. And it's full of weeds, sargasso weed. Ah, oh, really? You know, which yeah, yeah, like a like a kelp yeah, forest or of, something. Yeah, exactly. And, but it's and way off. Species that live out there, you know, uh, don't get found anywhere else. It's off the shipping routes. Uh -huh. uh, it's the I, is I it believe, in the Bermuda Triangle? Yes, it is, and it's uh -huh. the horse latitudes where Columbus was uh, uh, stuck for. 
two or three weeks, but where they had to throw a call, so cold because they had to eat the horse uh, that um, they had on the ships uh, to right. save them. That's what they say. And they they, I, they drag their shoes in the salt water to soften up the yeah, leather and yeah, eat that and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too bad they didn't die before they got there. <laughs> um, what, so what do eels eat? What do eels eat? Uh, they eat small crustaceans, insects. They're nocturnal feeders. They like to stay in the mud during the day, and then they go out and hunt at night. And so uh, they like the, crabs. They go along the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. They like crab a lot. Uh, they have the ability to return to wherever it is they go from. You can take an eel, uh-huh. move it quite a ways, and it'll find its way back to wherever you moved it from. So they have some sort of homing mm-hmm. device. Huh. What about uh, Ray? Don't forget that when the eel comes out of the freshwater, to go to the Sargasso, it has a tremendously long trip ahead of it. Hundreds, if not thousands of miles. From Europe from, to from fucking Europe. Bermuda, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and they make that trip. And they got, and unerringly. They, and they make it at deep depths because uh, adult live eels have never been netted in the Atlantic. So they're really going along the bottom. Well, they're not going. They may only be going, say, three hundred feet down. Oh, okay. But they're going low, right? Uh, and they're riding currents. They're riding well, to some extent, or maybe sometimes they're going against the current. So there's, I mean, the theory is, and it's only a theory that it's a magnetic orientation um, that helps them get back. You know, right? Because. Now, what about like moray eels and electric eels? These are different species. They're they different. Don't do that. They don't do the no. freshwater thing. No. Yeah, no. yeah. No. Are, now, is there only? It's sorry for for belaboring the eels here, but it's not often I get a chance to talk to somebody oh, who knows. It's, who a knows very, a shit you know, it's about an eels. amazing animal. The thing about it that attracts me is that it's such a humdrum animal. It lives in the fucking mud. It's you know. It's slimy. <laughs> you can't yeah. hold, if you pick one up, it's like trying to pick up water. You know, it's uh, it's impossible to get a hold of an eel unless you know the secret handshake. There's a grip that you use. Oh yeah, the eel grip. Yeah. What's the eel grip? You learned this from a hooker in Vegas. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's 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 like two fingers Uh and a thumb, thumb underneath it, and two fingers wrapped around the top of it, so that you're holding it that way. Otherwise, it's just. Or you can always use a, a towel. That helps. Yeah, but they're very slimy. You can't hold on to them. Yeah, but. I mean, they seem to be such common, ordinary, ugly creatures. And in fact, they, you know, they transform their bodies. They transform themselves in these marvelous ways that we just couldn't even approximate. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's wonderful. You know, they have a life that's so much more varied than ours. So much more <laughs> different. So you know, it's yeah. it's, so, it's beautiful. And they transform themselves three times during the course of their life. Whereas all we do is get liver spots. You know, get old and. Yeah, well, they, you know, yeah, there's some yeah. transgender people who might take exception to that. Yeah. Oh, good for them. <laughs> <laughs> um, the are there is there only that one species that generates electricity? I think so. Yeah. 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 And did you did that come into your no, research? No, I didn't look at it all. I just looked at the ones that go from the ocean to the right. to freshwater. And right. Land, you know? Right. I met a lot of people who deal with them. I mean, there's, as in anything, there's you know a certain number of people who make a living from eels in one way or another and I kind of search them out you know, primarily from the, the culinary aspect of it a lot of people from the culinary aspect of it fish, fishing them you know selling them middle manning them are there farmed eels 
No, we can't farm any eel because they oh, can't, they they got to move in the Sargasso. Yeah, that's right. No one's ever farmed one successfully. The Japanese may have farmed them with incredible cost uh, once or twice, but it's not something that you could do. You know. The other Crazy. thing with eels that they use them for is they use the skins to make wallets. And ah, that's right, eel skin. Yeah, yeah. And boots. Right, skin boots, eel skin wallets. Because it's very thin but strong. Very right? thin but strong. Yeah. But they, they say I don't know whether it's true that uh, eel skin wallets tend to demagnetize credit cards. Oh, so, so there's the electric thing so, again. Yeah, yeah. 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 I don't know. Wow, interesting. All right, well, fascinating. So, uh, what came next then? Ah. Good, damn good course. And there's no, there's no pattern that I can detect here, except maybe no, a little there's water. No there's, there's, there's a, a water. water. Are you an Aquarius, by the way? No, no, uh, no, Cancer. Uh, another water sign. <laughs> Uh, so what came next? Uh, next, uh, good question. Was it the hereafter? Yeah, or was there something after. Yeah, it was a book that. on immortality. Yeah, I yeah. love that book. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. That was one of my favorite That's books. That's terrific. Well, you had a hand and you recommended to me that I go to Varanasi. Oh, did I? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He yeah. said, well, man, if you're writing a book on immortality, you better go to Varanasi. So I did. Yeah. Uh, which was very good experience. It was yeah. very interesting. It helped me uh, with the book and helped me in general. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's... that's a lot to think about. Right. Uh, so so tell, tell tell our listeners what that book's about. Well, it's a, no, it's really a book about... It's a comparative religion book, I would call it, having to do with uh, how people think about immortality. Uh, it struck me there's only three things to think about immortality, that it doesn't exist at all, that some element of ourselves uh, moves on, you know, soul or some sort of energy, or that we get uh, reborn, as the Christians believe, my, or, you know, as a majority, that uh, we get reborn in our body, as it is, uh, as Christians and Muslims both believe. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, not, you know, what can you think about what happens after you die? Uh, that's about it. And so I talk to people from all those different persuasions uh, and spent time with them and, and did the book that way. I, I can't say I drew any definitive conclusions, uh, but it was an interesting book to, to write, to research and to write. Yeah, so. yeah, definitely. And it's, it's a very uh, accessible book. It's not a... It's not a dense sort of, you know, deeply, it is philosophical, but your writing style is so journalistic and so uh, friendly to the reader, you know, all all these books. Okay, we were talking, before the drilling started there, we were talking about The Hereafter, which is a book about uh, how people in different cultures envision what happens after we die and you were saying there are three things there's the three different possibilities for what you could think about there's nothing uh there's the soul moving on in some form or another some essence or uh you know there's the fact that we are uh reborn uh, in eternity with the bodies that we carried through uh this one life uh, and that's about it. There's not really many other ways of thinking about what happens after you die. So reincarnation would be part of the second in the well, second Reincarnation group. would be part of the second, a, right. a form of the second one. Right. Right. Yeah. Some sort of soul. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, reincarnation uh, for most of us, I think, is sort of, uh, you know, I don't remember. If you don't remember, it's just, uh, well, it's okay. But uh, isn't it interesting that we're so terrified of what comes after life but we don't have any terror associated with what came before well 
You know what I mean? Why is the night after so much worse than the night before? But, you know, it's a standard Buddhist question. Uh, what was my face before I was born? Right. Uh, it's kind of kind of in that line. You yeah, know? yeah. Uh, whatever it was, if it's nothing, it's nothing. Or if it's something, it's something. But whatever it was, we're going back to it uh, and right smart, you know, of a hurry. Right. So. Unless you have a linear sense of it, like in the the Hindu tradition or yeah. something, where yeah. there's, you know, you are reincarnated, but it's it's part of a larger cycle uh-huh. of. You, you the only have, reassuring thing, really, is that you can't buy your way out of it. You know, that's good. That uh, everybody's got to die. It would be miserable if some people were able to, uh, you know, fucking Mitt Romney. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah buy. <laughs> 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 this would be bad, but since everybody's got to go through it, you know, that's how it is. Yeah. Yeah. I remember having a conversation, uh, well, with uh, a guy you and I both know, Brian, who's um, uh, a really good guy. He's an investment banker, and um, uh, he was, you know, like we, we, we overlap a lot. We, we share a lot of values and things, but when it comes to money, we're in two completely different worlds, you know. And he said to me when I, we were talking about um, uh, the future, you know, and I was in my late 40s and he's a couple of years younger than me. But, you know, he said, well, you know, what are you going to do? Because, like, you don't have any, you know, pension or Social Security or, you know, savings or, you know, and this is the guy who, you know, makes six figure, seven figure salary easy. So he's got, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, money stashed away. And so for him, because he's got a lot of kids, he's got a lot of kids. Exactly. (laughs) I don't have any kids. And I said to him, you know, it's like, I don't have to worry about anyone else. The only person I really have to worry about is myself. And he said, but what are you going to do if if you get, you know, too old to work and and you're sick and you're. And I said, I'm going to die. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's not that big a deal. You're going to die, you know, and, you know, for, as long as people have existed, people have chosen when to die. And when life becomes more trouble than it's worth, then you fucking die. Well, you know, true. it's so I mean, in the one on one hand, it's kind of a terrifying prospect. But I think on the other hand, it's a very liberating prospect. This is true, but it's also true. You know, what Studs Choco used to say was, uh, he said, Jesus, he said, I look at uh, old people and they can't hardly walk, they don't smell anything anymore, they can't hear worth a damn, they don't know where they are, they can hardly stand up without falling down. He said, you know, the only people who would want to get to be 90 years old are everybody that's 89. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's the truth. That is true. That's the truth. You know. Well, you know, my this book I'm working on now is called Civilized to Death, and death is a big part of it, yeah. um, you know, in, in several different ways, and some of which you covered in your book, I think. The, you know, the funeral industry and the, you know, the, the absurdity of a $10,000 hermetically sealed stainless steel casket. Like, what the fuck are you doing? What, what are we thinking about there? What, you know, what's the symbolic logic of that? But, um, but also the ways in which having isolated ourselves from death to such an extent in the Western world, we've also isolated ourselves from life. You know, it's it's like antidepressants. You know, they don't only take off the low end; they take off the high end. And it seems like that's sort of a general rule in life. You know, if you want the extreme pleasure, well, you got to open yourself to the extreme pain. If you want, you know, risk cuts both ways, experience cuts both ways, everything does. 
And to try to only get one side of that spectrum, it never fucking works. No, that's you know? I, I couldn't agree with you more. Look forward to reading Civilized to Death. That's a nice title. Oh, thanks. That's yeah, so far that's all I've got written, but <laughs> well, I should just quit, easy. quit while I'm ahead. Yeah, exactly. Once you got the title. <laughs> that is great. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. It's, it's going to be, a, I think it's going to be a polemic. It's going to be sort of, you know, what I, I want to ask the most subversive question ever, which is, was civilization really that good an idea? Yeah. 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 Now, let's really, you know, challenge the Hobbesian assumption underlying this whole thing. Mm -hmm. well, first of all, was life before the state really solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short? Was it? Really? Mm -hmm. You know? And then uh, if it wasn't, that sort of uh, calls into question a lot of other things. Right? Yeah, for sure. But anyway, that's, you know... That'll be my book number two. It's a good I've got a lot start of work from your to book do. Number one, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's the idea. I mean, I you know, I thought the next book would be about sex. I thought you know that's what everyone would want, and everyone I talked to, you know, every agent and editor, they all said, "Man, if you write another book about sex, you're going to be the sex guy." Huh? True it, enough. You know, and yeah. that's it. You know, that's your career. Yeah. And so, if you want to be the idea guy, the next book has to be another idea book yeah. and not a sex book. Sounds good. So, which brings us to your career. Is there any fucking rhyme and reason to all this? Or do you just follow your whims? Uh, uh, no, I basically have just followed my whims. Uh, and I must say, it's uh, uh, not given me a steady income stream. <laughs> <laughs> but you haven't been bored all <laughs> But that. I haven't been bored. Yeah. No, I had a great time. Uh, and I haven't made any money, but that's okay. But you, what uh, you, I mean, I guess when I met you was through the Metropolitan. I don't remember yeah, how. No, I started a magazine here with a, uh, an associate. We started this uh, English language magazine for residents of Barcelona. And that, uh, still going. Uh, yeah. And uh, I'm retired from that now, but I worked there for 15 years or so. And that was very nice. It's a good, uh, you know, and it was work and it did provide me with a salary and a pension right. and uh, all of those things. Yeah, yeah. good. So that's okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then you you wrote a novel recently. Wrote a novel recently. That I'm Your first novel, around. first right? novel. Yeah, that was very good. Uh, it was a very. It's completely different from writing nonfiction. You know, it's a different part of the brain, really, and it was good. Uh, I discovered that I had a lot of uh, anecdotal material and things that I had seen and lived through, and uh, that I needed to get out. It felt good to get that stuff out to write them out. You know. Uh, why is that? Why does that feel good? Process? Well, I think, you know, you've got all that stuff and it's kind of interesting to try and shape it and make it readable and interesting or funny or dramatic, whatever the case may be. Uh, and well, it's just good to get it out in the world, that stuff, you know, rather than carry it around with you all the time, I think. It's, Do you think, is you know, related to what we were just talking about, is there something... Um, death-defying about it? I'm not sure. I mean, logic would say maybe yes, that you want to, you know, it certainly is, uh, uh, these things have all happened to you in your one small particular life, and it's good to get them out uh, so that they take on some other shape and form. It may be that they take, you know, it may be that it gives those things some sort of permanence that they wouldn't otherwise have. But, uh, oh no, I was surprised. And, and I like the way that uh, 
You know, I, plot has never been a strong point for me. And the thing about writing nonfiction is you don't need to worry about plot. You've got the plot. You know, an eel is an eel. And uh, <laughs> you just need to find out about it. You know, you right. need to investigate it. Right. But you don't need to, you need to structure the book. And it's good if the book has narrative momentum. But plot is it's more secondary, writing nonfiction for sure. Uh, and yet I was sort of, you know, it's intriguing to find what I heard from so many people that once you begin to write a novel, the characters take over for you. Mm. And the plot uh, develops as the characters develop, and they develop the plot. It's, it's just a very curious process. You know, I enjoyed it, really, mm. in the long run. Uh, I'd like to sell a damn thing, but... Uh, What's it called? Uh, magic. Magic. Because it's based a little bit on this time that I spent with the magician. Right. It's written from the magician's point of view, from a traveling magic show. Uh, and, uh, is there a, a character like you who's screwing no, his assistant? There's no character like me. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. That would have been an interesting no, I'm, challenge. I'm out of it. Uh, but of course, there's a, you know many of the things that take place in the novel are things that I've seen or, or done. Huh. So. All right. Any literary agents who are, happen to be listening to yeah, this, yeah, we, we get in touch with yeah. Richard Schweid. <laughs> Richard, com, yeah. dot com. All, right. Right. All right. And then the, the, the next project you're working on now. You, I'm working with a, a friend of mine show. in Nashville who's a uh, film producer. And we're doing a program that we hope will sort of uh, draw people into how nice it is that Nashville is now a multicultural city. And we're doing that through the lens of food. Uh, we call this home cooking and it's about we follow people from a specific country a foreign country as they shop cook and serve a traditional meal to people in Nashville and we follow them in their lives a little bit and give a sense of who they are but basically it's an appreciation of the role that food plays uh, for all of us you know this is mm. something that uh, a white cracker from Nashville is going to share with a uh, young dark-skinned woman from Kenya they both sort of eat in each of them their families food plays a very important role and uh, it's that that we're trying to kind of kind of highlight you know so it's kind of a travel culinary show but all in it's Nashville kind of it's, yeah it's yeah. kind of a cultural show but through the lens of food it's not a cooking show right. but we show people cooking uh, and uh, it's fun. It's fun. Oh, it's got man. a nice feel to it. Uh, yeah, nice. So I hope that takes off. I thank you, Colin. All right. Any any TV people watching? Get in touch with Richard. <laughs> in touch. Thanks very much, Chris. It's yeah. always a pleasure to sit down and talk to you. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for doing this, man. Great. Why don't you let it out to play? 
Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.